Good morning, fellowship. Go ahead and take a seat. Great to be with you this morning. Let me introduce myself. I'm Rob Sweet, and I'll just add my welcome to what you've already heard from Carl. And so good to be together in worship this morning. Before we go any further in our worship service, I want to introduce you to a family we have in our body this morning who are serving in partnership with us in a faraway place. One of our global partners is here this morning. So I want to invite them up to the stage. The Loche family is here from Slovenia. Let's welcome them to fellowship. So good to have you all this morning. We're going to spend just a few minutes for you to get to know them better, and then we're going to pray for them. And then there's a horse. There's a horse here in their honor, which we'll connect the dots on that in a minute. But we've got that for the kids, and we're here with you all on the stage this morning, and we're so glad that you're here. So introduce yourselves. Uh, Good morning, fellowship family. I get to call you family because you have been partnering with us for 15 years, and we have been your global partners for nine years, and we feel at home, so thank you for that so much. Uh, so this is our family, Andrea and Nina. We have been married for 22 years, and we have three children. This is Eva, our oldest. She is 15. Then we have Tim. He is 10, and Isaac, he is 7. Wonderful. All right, so tell us a little bit about where you're from. Slovenia. Tell us about that and, and the ministry and the work that God has called you to there. Yeah, uh, not sure if you know where Slovenia is at. It's in Europe. That's okay. <laughs> this is not a test. Today's Sunday. No school, no tests. Uh, so we're in Europe. Uh, you're probably familiar with Italy. Everyone knows where Italy is because it's so easy to remember. It's that boot. And if this is the boot, right? You picture that? We're right here. <laughs> That's true. But it's not that bad, you know. The, Slovenia is, uh, is one of those uh, places that, that people don't know about, uh, but it's beautiful. Uh, you're familiar with Swiss Alps? I like to say that uh, we let, uh, we kind of give them the Alps. The Alps start in Slovenia. And then we go like, okay, Swiss, you can have a little bit. <laughs> and uh, it's pretty small. Uh, it's only 2 million people living in Slovenia. A beautiful country, but really uh, spiritually very dark. Out of 2 million people, there's only 15 to 1,800 believers in the whole country, which is around 40 or 35 to 40 churches. So we were here in the first service, and, and I'm looking at you guys, and I'm like, whoa, this is probably the number of all of us believers in our country. That's just mind-blowing to be with you guys. Thank you so much. And uh, what we do, uh, we love to bring Christ and hope to the country of Slovenia. Uh, we are uh, among the top, I think we're number one in suicide rate in, in Europe. Because people have no hope. Because they know, don't know Jesus. And that's something that we can do. That's something that God sent us to do 14 years ago. We, we moved to our hometown. We lived outside. We moved back to our hometown to plant the church. We're working with youth and uh, making disciples that make disciples. And once you make disciples that make disciples, church kind of happens. I like to say then you have a problem. It's called church. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> this, is what, this is what we've been doing, uh, seeing the church grow, seeing the pastors work together. And uh, you guys have sent teams. You've been sending teams over to Slovenia year after year after year after year. And we, we got to meet some of them. It was like, oh. They're bringing kids to your church now. It's amazing. There were teenagers when they were with us and sharing their love and their heart for Jesus with young people uh, in Slovenia. And actually, uh, some of some of your team, uh, like our team, just came back from fusion camp, and the the Slovene leaders that run fusion right now were not even believers when your church came over to share the gospel with them. And Ur responded to Jesus that was shared with him through you guys, through some of your people. And now he's leading the whole ministry. Mm. And that's what you guys have been part of. So thank you so much for partnering with us. That is so good. Okay, Ava, I want to ask you about the horse because this is something connected to what you're doing. Yeah, okay. So basically another part of our ministry, what we do is we work with kids and horses Horses are great animals. They draw people in. They bring people into our family and into our group, into our home. And 
people will start to ask questions. They'll start to ask about us, and we tell them about church. They'll come to church, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's a lot of believers in our village. Um, and so we can't really bring our horses to you guys um, because they're all the way in Slovenia. But uh, our friends at Freedom Reigns have brought their horse, Goliath. So he's going to hang out with your kids right now. And then after the service, you guys can go say hello to him as well. Perfect. And by the way, I, I went over there and snuck a peek at him. He doesn't exactly look like a Goliath, like what I had in my head for Goliath horse. But he's sweet. He's a sweet horse. Uh, tell us how, maybe how we can pray for you. And give us some context around how you all have been doing the last few years and how we can pray for you. So uh, we've been uh, serving in Slovenia for uh, 14 years now, and uh, it's, <laughs> it's not easy to come to your hometown. Uh, we're the only believers in a, in a family, uh, and, and we are there to plant the church. And then on top of that, a couple of years ago, you all know COVID happened, and it was a lot of just hard things, uh, not as much because of the, the virus and all that, but it was a lot of broken relationships. And in Slovenia, we've seen a lot of broken relationships within churches, outside of churches. And as we love people and serve people, that just brought so much heaviness on us. And uh, at that point, my body said, I'm done. And I went through burnout. Uh, it took me uh, over six months to be able to kind of function again. Uh, but what's amazing is during that time, God started a church in our home village. So we're not the only believers in our village anymore because during COVID and my burnout, God started the church. And then uh, another thing that the whole like horse ministry and, and birthday parties that we do for kids and all the, the service, that also started <laughs> during my burnout. So when we're weak, God is strong. Amen. So, so a prayer request, if you guys would be willing to pray for us, would be perseverance. Because as you see, if you stay in it, if you trust, if you obey, even in the weakest spots, he comes through. And we have seen him do that. Please pray for us for that. We have uh, prayer cards that are out in the back if you want to take just to see, that, oh, look at this family. And we want to pray for them. Um, and because I have my kids here with me, this doesn't happen so often. I wanted to ask you to pray for them. They are in their schools, the only believers. And it is a really dark place to be at. And I have just been praying that they would be the light and the salt to this earth that is in Slovenia, quite dark and difficult. And if you can pray for them by name, this would make my mother's heart very happy. <laughs> mm, amen. Thank you so much. Amen. And I, that's, a, that's an easy request for us to pray for you all, for perseverance, for your children. And please grab one of these prayer cards on your way out. It's been so good to have you guys here. We wish it could be more often, uh, but you're going to be here this week. There's going to be some week. other events they're going to be doing throughout the week. So if you want to connect with that, come meet them. Where will you all be after the service? Will you be in, down here or will you be over with the horse? We are at the horse. Yeah, it just kind of okay. happened. We kind of lingered there. Come, come to the horse. Yeah, if you want to say come hello to the horse. The okay. That area will be there. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Let's pray for them. Father, we thank you so much for your gift of being with the Loche family this morning. Thank you for the way that you have allowed them to come here, to have some time to connect with us, to have some time to breathe and rest, be in a different environment, to worship with us this morning. It's so sweet, such good gifts that you've given. And Father, they are a delight. And we, we know that you are using them. And I, I love what Andre said, even in our weakness, oftentimes, mostly in our weakness. Your power shows through. So I thank you the way that you have been doing that. I thank you for the ministry of the horses. I thank you for the church that has been birthed. I thank you for the birthday parties, the other things that they're doing, the friendships that they're forming in that community. Father, we do pray for perseverance for them. And we pray for these children, these, these beautiful children that you are using. In the, and may they be a light. May they be all that you've called them to be in a place that must be very difficult for them sometimes, and yet you are inside of them and you are with them, and so we pray for deep encouragement and grace over their lives, and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you all for Thank being you. with us this Thank morning. You. We started serving in fellowship in 2009, initially in the greeter ministry. I've been serving since 2021 in the two to three year old classroom at the Franklin campus. I've been serving for one year with the Caterpillar classroom. 
Yeah, and FSM, I've been serving for six years. Oh man, I started in 2014. Actually, uh, I've only served in the past year in ushering. We had been greeters before at another church uh, in another city that we lived in, and we thought that was an awesome way to get our, our feet in the door. Right away, we started meeting people, and more importantly, we started learning about the church because we started getting questions sometimes from people at the door. Kendra was a big influence for me serving. At first, it was a, okay, I'll do it because you want me to do it, but it just completely changed once I got into the classroom. Just to see the same kids from one week to the next, when they come in the room and they smile and they come running over to me, that's what makes it special for me. Probably the favorite part is just being able to uh, greet people on a week-by-week -week basis. Uh, I also like the idea of, of being able to make people feel comfortable when they come, make them feel like we want them to come. One of my girls was trying to figure some stuff out, struggling with some stuff, and I thought, okay, what can I do? Like, I'm kind of new to this. How can I encourage her? And I had these little sheets of paper that listed some attributes of God, who he is, and then some attributes of like who he created you to be and some verses to go with it. And so I highlighted a couple of them that I thought spoke to what she had shared. I gave it to her one Wednesday and just explained it. And she was just kind of like, okay. And we went up on our ways and I thought that was too much. We carried on for years and I kind of forgot about it. Our senior year together, it randomly came up in conversation. She said, yeah, that paper you gave me, I still have it in my Bible. I go back to it all the time. And I was just like, wait, are you kidding? Because I thought that didn't do anything. That's going to stick with me now. Like, okay, just keep showing up. It's worth it. And God can work in that. Seeing people, getting to know people, having people to get to know us, it's authentic. And it's, it's a way that we can really establish biblical relationships. For somebody who's debating, you won't regret it. It's so meaningful, and it's, it's just one of the best things that we do in our life. One of our leader students, he was 18. Um, he had just lost his dad. He was having a hard time adjusting. I remember he was acting up a little bit more than usual, and I pulled him aside, and I just told him that, like, you matter. You know that, right? And like, he started to break down, I started to break down. It was like a beautiful moment. But in that, I realized like, your service has impact. You don't have to do big to be planting little seeds in the minds of these kiddos. And to see that flourish in real time has been just incredibly special, so. Yeah, I would say if you're considering serving, think about how I got started. Once I got in, and started to serve. It was such a revelation for me to be able to help them get to know Jesus. Hi, I'm Terry. And I'm Colleen. Hi, I'm Kendra. And I'm Eric. My name is John. And I'm Rebecca, but I go by Reby. I'm Frank Britton, and, and I serve, serve a fellowship. fellowship. All right. Chick-fil-A has the red couch. We have the blue couch. <laughs> so good. Listen, I, I want to use this moment to encourage you to jump in on this. You can see on the screen the opportunities that we have, the numbers that we have. Those are real numbers. Those are people that we need. And if you, you add up those numbers, I think I, I added it up last night. It was somewhere around 237. Now, I'm looking around this room right now. We have almost three times that number of people right now, right here in this room. Let's knock this out. You know, there's a place for you to serve. In fact, our model here at Fellowship is come worship one service and serve a second service. Serve another service. And because we're going to three services, which I'll talk about in a couple of weeks or a couple of, a couple of minutes, we're going to three services, we have more needs than we ever have had because we want to make sure that our learning center is open for all three ser services for all three ages. We want to make sure people are greeted. We want to make sure we've got the tech crew and the production crew and the volunteer and the security team and all these things that we need. You can see those on there. So I can't encourage you enough. Please jump on this. Take advantage of this. And while I'm talking about services, let me put that slide up as well. Uh, in a few weeks from now, on August 6th, we're going to begin three service times, 8 o'clock, 9.35, I know those times are a little bit odd. It's not just so that you'll remember them. It's so that we can space them out to have enough time in between the services for transitions and these kinds of things. Here's what we know will happen because we've done this before. Most of you will want to naturally gravitate toward the 9.35. 
I don't blame you. That's a great service time. But here's what we know is that if that service is crowded, we won't have seats available for new folks to join us. So if you're able to serve in the 935 and then worship with us either at the 8 o'clock or the 1110, that would be fantastic. So we're asking you to consider that. And even if you're not able to serve, if you're able to attend either the 8 a.m. or the 1110 a.m. service, that will really allow seats for people to be invited in here in all three services. So thank you for considering that, praying through that, and we're looking forward to it. So enjoy these last two or three weeks of this service time because it's going away and out with the old and with the new, so to speak. But uh, it, it will be a wonderful opportunity as we continue to grow as a church. All right, open your Bibles now to John chapter 12. If you're new to fellowship, uh, the way we typically teach is we just walk through a book from chapter one, verse one, to the last chapter and the last verse of the book. It's called expositional teaching, and we just explain a passage as we go. We're in John chapter 12. We've been in the Gospel of John for quite some time, and myself, Rob, and Lloyd Shadrach, who's our teaching pastor, we work together. And so if you hear Lloyd one week, most likely you'll hear me the next week, and we are just working through this text together. Now, the past two Sundays, we've been in John chapter 11, one of my favorite chapters in John's Gospel, because it's the story of Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus from the grave. This morning, we're going to be in chapter 12. I'm going to cover verses 1 to 19 of chapter 12. And what our text this morning is all about is the response of people to the raising of Lazarus. It's the ripple effects, if you will, of that miracle. And what we're going to see is three very different responses by three very different groups of people, all responding to the same news that Lazarus was sick and died and Jesus raised him back up and it was witnessed by dozens of people all responding to that news, they respond very, very differently. And if you think about it, our lives are shaped mostly by how we respond to things that happen. Maybe an opportunity comes in your life, a tragedy comes in your life, uh, something unexpected occurs. And in many ways, it's not so much about the thing that changes you or that shapes the rest of your life, but how you respond to it, what you do in response to it go up a higher level, Christianity itself is a response to a series of events that happen in real time in real place. It's one of the things that makes Christianity distinct from any other religion. What I mean by that is, you know, the other religions are basically systems of philosophy or, or systems of virtue, you know, attempting to explain how to get to God or how to find inner peace. Christianity contains philosophy. It contains virtue. But what makes it unique is it it actually, Christianity exists as a response to the work of God in the world. At a certain time, in a certain place, God became man, a Jewish man named Jesus. He was put to death by us and for us. And then he crushed death on our behalf. And that's the news. That's the gospel. That's why the core message of Christianity is good news. Not good advice, not good philosophy, not good virtue. It's news, and how you respond to that news is essentially everything about you. It's the most important thing you'll ever do is responding to the news of Jesus. In fact, the whole New Testament, you can understand the whole New Testament as announcement of the news followed by a question. How will you respond to these events in real time and in real place. So this morning, as we look at these three very different responses to the work of Jesus, in this case, the raising of Lazarus, we can apply it to our own lives and we'll start to see something of ourselves in each of these responses to the work of Christ. So we'll cover each of these three responses. I'm gonna go a little bit out of order because honestly, I wanna end on the first one. I wanna land there, but let's start with verse one because it sets the, the setting and then we'll, We'll cover all the verses, but in a little bit of a different order. So here's verse 1. We'll put that on the screen. This is six days before the Passover. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Jesus returns to the scene of the miracle, the great raising of Lazarus. Now, it's probably been, we don't, we don't know, anywhere from a few weeks to a few months since the raising of Lazarus has, has um, taken place. And you remember when Lloyd taught last week, it, it, it was such an event that the Pharisees, the chief priests, the religious rulers, they basically said, okay, enough is enough. We're gonna put out an all points bulletin on, on Jesus. 
We're going to put the wanted posters up and start getting the word out. If you see Jesus, if you find Jesus, let us know where he is so we can arrest him. So Jesus goes into hiding with his disciples, basically, in, in Ephraim. We don't hear anything about his ministry during that time. The next thing we know, he's back here six days before the Passover in Bethany in the hometown of Lazarus with Lazarus. One last thing about the setting. Passover, the events of Passover are very significant. This is going to be the final week of Jesus' life. We're right on the cusp of it. The other thing to keep in mind about Passover is it's a very nationalistic holiday for the Jews. it, It tells the story of their deliverance from Egypt, them becoming a nation. And, and every year they retell that story and sort of the nationalistic hopes come up. It's just like, when is God going to give us another exodus, another freedom? Now they're enslaved by the Romans. So it's a very nationalistic holiday. It's spiritual, deeply spiritual, deeply nationalistic. And all that's going on, you know, sort of in the context and the setting of what we're going to read today. So with that in mind, skip down now to verse 11. And we will see our first group of people and how they're responding to the news of Lazarus' resurrection. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The first group of people I want to talk about this morning is the chief priests. We'll focus on the crowds in the next part, but let's focus right now on the chief priests. We already know they're planning to kill Jesus from last week's text. Now we learn they've decided to kill Lazarus as well. So what was their response to the raising of Lazarus? What was their response to this miracle? You know, no no doubt they, they didn't believe it, perhaps. What's their response? To try to make it go away. And, and how are they going to make it go away? They're, they're going to bury it. You know, literally, they're going to bury the evidence. So I've, I've brought along with me this morning a symbol, an object that symbolizes each of these responses to the news of Lazarus. And this one symbolizes, obviously, the response of the religious leaders. We're going to kill Lazarus. Like, we're going to bury the evidence. We're going to dig a hole, essentially, so to speak. We're going to put Lazarus in it. And then no one's going to be able to say anything unusual happened. No no one's going to be able to say, hey, he's a walking miracle, a testimony of the power of Jesus. They won't be able to say that because Lazarus is going to be in the tomb. Now, here's the irony of this. They're trying to undo the exact same thing that God did. He was in the tomb. He was under the ground. And Jesus, God on the earth, brought him back up. And now they want to undo it. They want to undo the thing that God has done. Listen, if God wants Lazarus alive, do you think they're going to be able to touch him? But this is what they're trying to do. That's the first irony. The second irony is the ones who are trying to do it, the ones that are trying to put him down, are the chief priests. A Jewish priest was meant to be a mediator between God and man. And so this is an amazing and sad commentary that the chief priests of God are the ones trying to undo the work of God. They should be the ones putting the work of God on display. They should be the ones falling at the feet of Jesus saying, teach us, help us. How can we shepherd this people? You're doing something important in our world. And instead, they're they're trying to bury the evidence of God at work. Now, why would they do this? No doubt some of them were driven by a strong religious impulse. In in their minds, Jesus was not the Messiah. And and kind of alarmingly, you know, they would argue that Jesus wasn't the Messiah from the scriptures. They would quote scriptures that said, listen, the scriptures say we're not going to know where this man comes from. We know where he comes from. He's got a hometown. He's got parent. You know, it can't be the Messiah. He's supposed to sort of appear out of nowhere, that kind of thing. They were misunderstanding the scripture. They, they were blind, and, and, and Jesus calls them blind guides. Is one of the ways that he refers to them. They missed the signs in the scripture that pointed that this is the one, that Jesus is the Messiah. And they misunderstood God's word even though they claimed to be experts. Remember, that was some of their motivation, right? Strong religious conviction. Yet they're willing to do murder in the name of God? Oh, 
Oh my, I think there's another motivation as well, another reason. This one much more practical. They had a lot of power and influence in that cultural system. For them to imagine that God might be doing something new in the world would be very disruptive to their sense of control. Now, where do we find ourselves in this? Where do we find ourselves in this first response, this group of people that, you know, they, they hear Lazarus has been raised from the grave and they're like, no, let, let, let's kill him, let's get rid of it, let's ignore it, let's keep moving on, pretending nothing happened, let's bury the evidence. I can't speak for you, but I know for me, I can become sometimes cynical, sometimes a little arrogant, sometimes a little closed off. And I think what's often going on in my heart is sort of self-protective of my identity my comfort, what's good for me, my system of control in my life. And God wants to stretch me some way. God wants to move in me some way. And I'm sometimes likely just to say, don't, don't go there. Don't go there. I want to I bury the work of God in my life at times because it's uncomfortable. Let me take this another direction. How many of us have experienced God starting to do something in our life or doing something significant in our life, in our heart, and then very quickly we snap back you know, and we, like, we live life the old way. It's like nothing ever happened. Classic of, example of this maybe is the, the church retreat. You know, many of us have been on church retreats, maybe as a student or maybe as an adult in other times. And, you know, this, this doesn't always happen on a retreat, but the image in my mind is the bonfire at the, the last night of the retreat. And we all have our, our twig, you know, our stick. And it symbolizes the change that God has done. And we, we we, we put, our, put it on the altar, you know, we, we give all that we have and then the next morning we get back up, we go home and we have to choose if we're gonna live with a new heart or bury the evidence. So often in our lives when God shows up, shows us something, we ignore it. We try to just keep living life. Why? Because we're afraid the price will be too high. I don't want to change, not really. What do you think we're gaining when we do that? Safety, comfort, convenience. Consider this, what are we giving up? Transformation. We're giving up beholding a miracle. But this is in all of our hearts, this temptation to, to, to dig a hole and, and put Jesus in the hole and kind of cover him up and just say, I'm nothing to see here. I'm going with my life. Let's look at the next group of people. We'll see them in the next set of verses. We'll pick it up in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let me explain that last verse first because it's a little confusing. A clearer way to understand this is the Pharisees are essentially saying, our strategy is getting us nowhere. You know, it's kind of funny when you think about it. They, they told everybody, be on the lookout for Jesus so we can arrest him. Jesus appears and what do the crowds do? They don't, they don't go to the religious leaders and say, hey, go arrest him. It's like they go crowd around him. They lift the palm branches. They shout and they're proclaiming him as king. And the Pharisees are like, ay, ay, ay. Our plan has backfired. Now, let's look back up at verses 12 to 15. This, of course, is a very famous scene. This is Palm Sunday. And this would have been the Sunday prior to the death of Jesus. This is the start of the Passover week. Jesus is riding into town. Uh, what's really happening on Palm Sunday? You've heard a lot of messages, I'm sure, through your life on Palm Sunday. And there's so many different threads that you can pull from these texts on Palm Sunday, but, but I want to pull a particular thread this morning, and, and I want to suggest that the key to understanding what's happening on Palm Sunday 
is to look at the two Old Testament quotations that are given here in this text. So the first one is here in verse 13. The people are shouting. And, and by the way, they're not making this up. It comes straight from the Old Testament. Here are the words. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quotation from Psalm 118, 25 to 26. Hosanna means save us, please, you know, please save us. It's a cry for the promised Messiah to rescue Israel from its oppressors. Psalm 18 was a Passover psalm. Now what are they waving while they're shouting out this quotation, this Psalm 118? What are they waving? Dumb question, I guess, but you guys didn't participate. That's okay. There, there it is. There it is. Palm branches. This is the second symbol. No surprise. This is the symbol of the crowds, you know. And, and, and notice John saying all this hubbub, you know, Palm Sunday in essence was a response to what they heard about him raising Lazarus from the grave. John makes that very, very clear. So here's the second symbol of, 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 the, of a response to this miracle, this, this work of God on the earth through Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk about palm branches for a moment. It's very interesting. Tree branches, palm branches, other kinds of trees were not associated with Passover. Now, they were associated with the Feast of Tabernacles, but, but you don't read about them, you know, in the other texts around Passover throughout the Old Testament. What had happened was, by the time of Jesus, the date palm tree, which is in Israel even to this day, they, they brought it back, the date palm tree had become a symbol of, of Jewish identity, of, of Hebrew nationalism. So, uh, you know, we have the eagle. It symbolizes our country, and we have some other nationalistic symbols. The, the date palm was theirs. It was one of their symbols, one of their primary ones. Now, how do we know this? Well, in the Maccabean revolt uh, against the Greeks, which happened in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jews, after they, they, they pushed out the enemy and they cleansed the temple, they rededicated the temple, and they waved the palm branches in that celebration. That was prominent in that celebration. And fa fast forward, after the Greeks came the Romans. The Romans took over. There were two Jewish revolts against Rome. And in both of those revolts, the Jews minted coins. And guess what symbol was on the coin? The palm tree. The palm tree was their symbol. It was sort of like, you see us, we are going to fight. And so by the time of Jesus, the date palm, and that's the kind of branches that these would have been that they were waving, was a symbol of Judea. In a sense, I don't want to take this too far, but in a sense, I think it might have been the closest thing the Jews had to a flag. They're making a political statement. By the way, that's why the, 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 the religious um, rulers get so angry at Jesus. You know, in another parallel text, they say, Jesus, make them stop. You see what they're doing? The Romans are going to get mad. You know, and Jesus says, if they are quiet, the rocks will cry out, you know? I love that line, but here's the scene. I say all this to say, here's the scene. It's the beginning of Passover week, their most nationalistic holiday. A great crowd of people has run out of Jerusalem to meet the one who's just raised a man from the grave. They're waving palm branches, the symbol of their Jewish identity. They're hailing him as their king. And I want you to notice something. I didn't underline this phrase here. Did you see the last part of their quotation, even the king of Israel? The reason I didn't underline it is it's not in Psalm 118. They, they added that part at the end. So you, you get an idea a little bit of what's actually happening. Now, how will Jesus respond to this, you know? How, what an interesting question. Is he going to encourage them in this? Is he going to discourage them in this? Look what he does. Verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Second Old Testament quotation. This one comes from Zephaniah chapter 9, verse 9. Now, it's shortened here. Let me read you the whole verse. Zephaniah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
do you see the juxtaposition between the great and the humble? Imagine a herald shouting out, Behold, your king is coming to you. Riding, checks notes, a donkey? Riding a donkey. That's not the way you expect the king to ride into town. That's not the way Jesus will ride into town in his second coming. He's going to come on a horse. You see, the king rides on a horse. What's going on here? In this great moment of, of, of triumph that, that they were wanting to make almost purely nationalistic, Jesus was sending a signal. He was putting power and weakness together on display, just as the scripture foretold he would. And this is amazing. By this simple act of him choosing this animal to ride on, this little donkey, and he was very strategic and purposeful in it, here's what Jesus was saying. And listen to the both end of this. Jesus was saying, yes, I am the king you are hoping for, and it is right and proper that you would call me king and that you would quote this psalm at this point, at this Passover, but I'm not yet riding in on a horse as a warrior to push back your political enemy. I'm riding on a donkey as a servant, a humble servant, a suffering servant, because you don't see it, but that is what you most need right now. So where do we find ourselves in this response to the work of Christ? Again, I can't answer for you, but, but I will say this. Let God work on his terms and his timing. And, and this applies in all kinds of ways. This, this applies in my life. This applies in your life. This applies around us. Jesus is a beautiful blend of power and humility. Sometimes his greatest miracles look rather humble at first. Now, we all want God to do great things in us and for us. And he will. And he will. But let him go at his pace. Let him go at his plan, his timing. He might just show up on a donkey when you're hoping he shows up on a horse. Now, we have to keep our hands open to the work of Jesus because if we don't, here's what happens. Okay? We don't keep our hands open when things don't turn out the way that we want them to, that we think they should, we might find ourselves in the shoes of the crowd at the end of the week who said, crucify him, crucify him. Because it turns out he's not who we thought he was. So we keep our hands open, even as we celebrate, even as we rejoice, even as we shout, Hosanna, we keep our hands open. Now, there's one more response that I want to get to, to this miracle of Jesus and how it plays out in someone's life. And this last group is not a group at all. It's a person. So let's look at the first part of our text. I'll begin back in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. One of the things I love about this little text is, is how intimate it is, how personal it is the, the rest of the events of the Passion Week as they unfold, they're, they're sort of epic in scale. You've got the crowds, the King Herod, Pontius Pilate, the mob. But here, before all that begins, the camera lens zooms in tight on one woman in one moment when someone was so overcome with gratitude 
that they couldn't help themselves in the presence of Jesus. Of course, this was Lazarus' sister, Mary, one of the two sisters. Remember, she had so recently fallen at Jesus' feet and said, if you, Jesus, had only been here, my brother would still be alive. And Jesus had entered into her suffering with his tears. And then he had done the impossible. He had given her her brother back. So what is Mary's response to the work of Jesus, to the work of of God, this amazing miracle? Well, she doesn't try to bury it like the high priests. How could she? She doesn't try to leverage it like the crowds, you know, shaping it into what she maybe wants it to be rather than what Jesus intends for it to be. Instead, she simply pours out everything she has in an extravagant act of devotion. The response, it just sort of seems, just flows out or just tumbles out of her. Here's the symbol of the third response to God's great work through Jesus Christ. Oil. Oil. Now, now this is just, just a little bit of oil. And, and this is how you normally find oil, just a little bit. Now, this particular oil, uh, when I was in Israel, I got this. You don't have to go to Israel to get anointing oil, by the way. But, but this is spikenard, which, which as best as we can tell, and I'm no expert on these things, is the same that she used. This is pure nard, spikenard, same thing. This is derived from a, a plant that's native to northern India. It was very costly, very expensive. Not anymore so much, but in the day of Mary, this, this was very expensive. Now, it, it smells wonderful. It's not exactly what you think. It, it's perfumey, but it's not. It has a, a musky but, but sweet scent. Uh, I, I've got a few of these down here, not for you to have. I don't have enough, but for you to come down and smell after the service if you'd like to. I'll leave them here on the stage for you to smell. The text says the whole house was filled with the smell. Why was the whole house filled with this smell, with this aroma? Because Mary used a whole pound. (laughs) You only need a few drops to do what she was trying to do. And she used a whole pound. Now, if you measure that out, it's probably somewhere around 12 ounces. You know, I don't know how much coffee you had this morning. You know, I've gone from the 8 to the 10. You know, 12 is next on my list. But that's like a big cup of coffee. and, And it's just this... Thick, wonderful, very potent oil. Think about oil. What is oil for a minute? It, it's the essence of a plant. It's, it's the substance of a plant that's painstakingly just distilled down and concentrated down. It, in a sense, it's, it's sort of liquid life. That's what it represents. And so we learn from a parallel account in Mark's gospel that she brings it out in an alabaster jar. Now that's significant because that was very expensive as well. So this very expensive ointment and this very expensive jar, this was likely, many scholars think, was, would have been an heirloom the family. It would have been their, their savings for this family. And what does she do? She pours it all out. Mark tells us she breaks the jar. And so this is why Judas's head explodes. <laughs> you know, Judas is like, that's 300 denarii at least. Now, one denarius was... A day's wage in that time. He's realizing that's basically a whole year's salary. A whole year's salary. She poured it out. She she wasted it. All she needed was a few drops. Not only that, not only did she pour it all out, but she poured it on his feet. Now we know from Mark's account that she poured it on his head as well. But John emphasizes the feet. Why does John emphasize the feet? In that culture, feet were filthy. Feet were untouchable. Feet were unapproachable. You know, you you, you got your feet really, really dirty. Only the lowliest of servants would touch someone's feet, would, would approach anyone's feet. Certainly, even they would not anoint feet with oil. And then there's the hair. Mary dries his feet with her hair. The only way she could have done that is to take her hair down. You did not do that in that culture. 
That was a little scandalous. That was outside of their social norms. Mary was acting with abandon. She was acting with extravagant abandon. You can only imagine what was going on inside of Mary. We don't know all of her thoughts. We don't know all of her emotions, but, but we can see something by what she's doing. And I want to encourage you right now, imagine being Mary. I mean, that's harder for some of us than others to imagine being Mary in this time, in this moment, in this place. But, but just realize, this man had brought your brother back to life before your eyes. What we're seeing here is someone who doesn't care what anyone else thinks of her. It's not about her reputation. She doesn't care what it costs. It's not about her money. It's not about her future security. Her actions are communicating something important, this, this response to the work of Jesus. And here's what she's communicating. Jesus did something in my life that had no conditions, and therefore I will respond to him with no conditions. What a picture of someone following Jesus with their whole heart. Think about the three things Mary did. She, she poured out all the oil first. You know, by pouring all of it out, she's saying, I will not be held back by any cost. By anointing his feet, she was saying, I will not hold back any of my dignity. And by letting down her hair, she was saying, I will not hold back my affection based on what others might think, based on some other system of what's appropriate and right and wrong. I'm, I'm giving all that I have in this moment my response to the power and love of Jesus is to devote my whole self to him, to give myself and everything I have completely over to him unconditionally. This is the response of Mary. Mary's response to Jesus activates Jesus' response back to Mary. Let, let, let's take a look at that. Verse seven, Jesus says to Judas, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, I want to talk about that verse for a minute. What Jesus is, in essence, saying here is, you all don't realize it yet, but I'm going to my own tomb. I'm on my way to my own grave. And what she has done in this moment is prepare me for my darkest day. And then in Mark's account, we see he also said this. Look at Mark 14, verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we are. So what work has Jesus done in your life? How have you responded Perhaps your instinct, you know, when, when God moves toward you, when, when Jesus moves toward you, perhaps your instinct is to try to just keep living your life, nothing to see here, bury the evidence, so to speak, try to ignore the work of God so you can maintain your systems of comfort and control. Perhaps, like the crowds, sometimes you expect God to work on your terms rather than on his and it's really hard for you to submit to his plans and his timing. But what if today your response could look like this? That you just give whatever you have. That you just lay at his feet. You just pour it out. I want to encourage you to pick up the communion element that you received when you came in. And if you missed it, it's not too late. I want to connect the dots of this text to the Lord's Supper so you have a moment or two that you can go in the back and you can take one from the table. And I, I want to invite everyone who's put their trust in Jesus Christ with us to participate in communion with us this morning. This is for everyone who's put their trust in Christ. You might have come in this morning saying, I don't have much of a trust in Christ. Here's the good news. It doesn't take much. You offer what you have. 
Now, I want to connect the dots to something here with the Lord's Supper. Go ahead and just take out the bread and just hold it in your hands. We're not going to eat it just yet, but we will in just a moment. But just hold the bread in your hands for just a minute. When Jesus said to Mary, or Jesus said about Mary, leave her alone. She's preparing my body for burial. He knew exactly where it was going. He knew that the week was beginning. And he knew that by the end of the week, he would be in a tomb. He'd be in a grave. He, he would be at least momentarily separated from the fellowship and love of his father. He knew what that was going to entail. And so at the supper, the night before, the night that he was betrayed, he took this bread and he gave that meaning to the disciples. He said, this is my body. I'm, I'm about to be broken for you. And, and he gave it to them and they received it. And this morning you have an opportunity to receive as well. And here's what this symbolizes for you, that what Jesus did, the good news of Jesus in real time and real place was not just for Mary, not just for the disciples. It was also for the chief priests. It was also for the angry mob. It was also for you and for me 2,000 years later. If you've received that news, and if it's your desire to respond to that news in devotion and worship, then receive the bread, and let's eat the bread in, remem in remembrance of Christ. And in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and after blessing it, he said, this cup is the new covenant that is in my blood blood that was given for you, given for me. We receive it now with joy. Drink the cup. The invitation this morning for us, even right now in this moment, there's no place else to be other than right here. The invitation is for us just to be at his feet like Mary and pour out whatever you have. No need to hold anything back because Jesus held nothing back from us. Amen. Good to be together today and worship Jesus. I'm glad that we are here together to do that. If we can pray for you this morning, we'd love to do that. You know, this is something that's a part of our service. We have some couples that are here at the end of the service, just here for you, just here to carry burdens with you or for anything that you want us to be aware of in your life, we'd love to lift that up. I'll be down front as well. If you want to say hello or if you want prayer, we'll be there for that. I want to send you out with these words. Each week, God gathers us together and he gathers us together so that we will worship Jesus and so that we can hear him speak to us through his word. This morning we've done that and he's done that. And what he's told us, what he's reminded us is that Jesus has done something on the earth that is worthy of worship. It is worthy of devotion. It is worthy of pouring everything that we have out. And now we go and we have the opportunity to do that and be witnesses of the good news of Jesus to others. Let us do that in the name of Christ. Amen. Have a great week.